I wonder about an element of ageism. I mean, we know that there is early onset Alzheimer's that affect people in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, but the vast majority of us are older. So you wonder about that. I wonder why Medicare doesn't have a properly trained neurologist on their decision-making team. So yes, I think discriminatory is a good word. Plain old injustice is a good word too. Welcome to Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's, a patient-centered nonprofit organization. Your host, Meryl Comer, is a co-founder, 24-year caregiver, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Slow Dancing with a Stranger. This is Brainstorm, and I'm Meryl Comer. Today we continue part two of our conversation with Rebecca Chalk, the 18th and first female chancellor at the University of Denver, former president of Swarthmore College and Colgate University, and dean and professor of theology at Yale Divinity School. I asked her how spirituality supports her and whether she has applied the same thinking of emancipatory transformation in managing life through the prism of her early onset Alzheimer's disease. Wow, now that's one nobody has ever asked me. But theology has deeply, deeply informed me with this disease. And I suppose, as you ask it that way, my notion of emancipatory transformation was both being emancipated from the bonds, from that prison of anxiety and denial, and being transformed to reinvent yourself. So it's both a moving way and moving toward. Augustine, Christian theologian, liked to say that freedom was moving from sin to love. So many times we think freedom is just being freed from something. But I think it's, for me, it's been being liberated from this constant prison of thinking, oh, now I'm mad, to the reinvention of living with joy. And that has a lot of theological roots. As a theologian, I've often gone back to Christian, especially theologians, some Jewish, and some Buddhist thinkers, uh, and also Christian and Jewish scriptures. Calvin had a thing about the Psalms being the anatomy of the soul. It's so true. The Psalms, there is this kind of praise, joy. There's also sections of anguish and crying with God, feeling abandoned, feeling abandoned by God, but also sometimes crying with God, sitting by the river and reaping. And then there is a third section of just embracing the everydayness of life. And so those are all, all ways. I think there's a lot of grace. I think the one thing that I have uh, grasped, two things I've grasped deeper now with Alzheimer's than I did before, is one is this sense of abiding. That, you know, it's okay not to do, 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 do. It's okay not to produce. It's okay to be at, at my deepest religious self, and this may not translate to everyone, but maybe you can translate it in a very creative way, is I think, geez, you know, maybe the universe just needs people to sit around and say yes and praise, and that's what I'm doing now, after spending a lifetime trying to fix it. <laughs> and the second thing is courage. 
Courage comes from the French word heart. And I think about that of living with heart. This is a disease that takes some courage. No question about that. Can you share decisions that you and your husband have made about how to spend your time? Because earlier, I had understood that you had moved to a senior living facility, and then you said, no, that's not how I want to live. Can you take us on that journey? It was really fascinating. You know, even though the neurologist who officially diagnosed me said live with joy, I had had an neurologist right before her who said in three years, you're not going to be buttoning your shirt. You won't be feeding yourself and you should think now about giving up your driver's license. That was almost four years ago. So that tape of that earlier neurologist was kind of hit harder because of the stigma we both carried. And my husband is very much a good caretaker, and he's one of those people who likes to make sure everything's planned out. So we had a very large condo in downtown Denver where we had entertained people for the University of Denver. And uh, we didn't need that much space. But he was also very worried that, as that one neurologist said, in three years, I might be ready to move to memory care. So he decided, and and I supported him, that we really needed to move to a place that we could move in independent care and then assisted living and uh, then memory care. So we found a place. And it was a very nice place. It was very nice. But it was geared (laughs) much more toward the kind of end of life. I, I think it had hoped It was a brand new place. I think it had hoped for a kind of different attitude. But all the staff were very much trained uh, that we were all very frail, elderly people. They talked to us in loud voices. I went to the art classes, and they were kind of pre-kindergarten level kind of thing. So after eight months, the other neurologist, the one live with joy neurologist, her voice became more dominant in our heads. So we decided to move out. It was a rental. And we bought a lovely home in a 55 plus community. So we could really embrace living. The reason I asked that question is I tried so hard to get ahead of the disease and anticipate what was coming next. Half of it never happened. It frightened me. It's a lesson in trying to live in the moment as well, rather than get too far ahead, because you can shut yourself down in that process. Yeah. Boy, that's, that is wonderfully wise words, because I think, again, the fear and anxiety and somewhat the stigma we carry can make us imagine exactly what's going to happen. And as you say, you can't. You just have to Take it as it comes, make the best of the moment, live in it. And everyone, as you said earlier, is different. You're an advocate and active member of Voices of Alzheimer's. It's a brand new 501c4 recruiting people who are really working like you. Uh, It's not your grandmother's Alzheimer's philosophy. Why is it so important for you to be an advocate now and spend your energy this way? 
I feel like I have to do it. I mean, somebody has to do it. Why not me? There are so many who can't. I'm so privileged. Uh, we have not enormous financial resources, but we have financial resources. I have a supportive husband. I have a nice warm house. You know, I can. And uh, I have an educational level that allows me, at least for right now, to continue doing some hard cognitive work. The drug companies, the pharmaceutical companies need to hear from us. Uh, they need to hear from caretakers. They need to hear from people with Alzheimer's. The government must hear from us. I'm pretty actively reaching out, I, as are most of the members, to our representatives and to our senators and to our states and to our local officials. I think most of us in the Voices of Alzheimer's are trying to reach out to the public. Uh, my book is aimed to help people who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but it is also directed to those people who are anxious about it. So, you know, we, we want to have this impact because we want to raise awareness. We want to have a better educational discussion about Alzheimer's. And we want to change not only the cultural stigma, but a lot of the current policies. And again, you know, our hope is that we can work with all these other wonderful groups and that because uh, those of us who have Alzheimer's can, we may be also able to be a little edgier. <laughs> Why not? I mean, several of us, you know, advocate being chained to fences and things like that. It's funny, but we need to do what it takes. Again, that's a legacy matter. When it comes to Medicare, the cost to manage the disease is out of pocket, and that really surprises many families. And many families go bankrupt because of the cost of care, whether it is in a facility or at home. No one really knows that there's only one PET scan that's reimbursable in your lifetime. And now, those living with the disease have been denied access to a disease-modifying therapy that might slow the progression of the disease. Now, do you consider these discriminatory decisions against a diagnosis and therapeutics that don't exist in other diseases? Absolutely. I mean, it is discriminatory. And uh, I think there is ample evidence that the PET scan is a good diagnostic tool. There's ample evidence that the drugs slow the progression. And I'm not saying everyone has to be on the drugs. I'm saying everyone should have the right to refuse treatment or to accept it, just like they have the right for cancer, heart disease, diabetes, all other diseases. I wonder about an element of ageism. I mean, we know that there is early onset Alzheimer's that affect people in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, but the vast majority of us are older. So you wonder about that. I wonder why Medicare doesn't have a properly trained neurologist on their decision-making team. So yes, I think discriminatory is a good word. Plain old injustice is a good word too. You have a reputation for candor. <laughs> so, so let's run through a few issues 
as succinctly as possible. Equity and access. What troubles you most about this issue? What troubles me most is that only the higher educated with resources who are willing to accept the diagnosis and get the drugs, they're terribly expensive. So Native Americans, Latinos, African Americans, higher rates than white populations, the poor, none of them will have access to these treatments. And that is part of the agenda of Voices of Alzheimer's, as I understand it as well. Absolutely. Are you troubled by the differential and disproportionate impact on women where two-thirds the patients and two-thirds the caregivers? I'm very upset about it. I can quickly analyze the caregivers. Uh, Women are traditionally the caregivers, right? But I'm trying to read now, is there something about the female brain that leads earlier to Alzheimer's? I don't know. There's, I know a debate. So I, I don't know that that's really a matter of justice in terms of the people who get Alzheimer's. I guess I would say for both women and men caregivers, it shouldn't be so costly. I worry about my husband and son as much as I regret what you had to do and what others. I just had a neighbor who lost her husband and she had to be her, his primary caretaker, did not have the resources to put him in a memory care or even a nursing facility. Terribly difficult. With the research advances and new treatments like Lakembi that have been shown to slow the decline in cognitive function, people may be able to live longer in the milder stages of Alzheimer's. Can you define what life looks like in a very simple way, what that means? So first of all, I would say it's never going to be just the drugs. You're also going to have to do these lifestyle interventions, just like heart disease. (laughs) You're going to have to take care of yourself. But, you know, I can define it. I can share what it is for me. I mean, you know, I get up. I have a wonderful dog, takes me on an hour walk in the beautiful Colorado kind of, you know, rocky land right before you get to the mountains. Right now I write or I paint. I have lunch with my husband. I have lunch with my friends. I might take a nap in the afternoon. I read. I belong to three book clubs and I advocate for Alzheimer's. It's a rich, full life and you can contribute to society. I think that's one of the things the Voices of Alzheimer's wants to prove is that we can still give back. Do you live in fear or at peace with your journey right now? I live in peace, but with anxiety about the ending. And I'm not anxious about death itself. I'm very settled about that. I am very anxious about those last two to three stages. And what I'm anxious about 
is why should it take five or six hundred thousand a year to care for me or whatever it takes when that money could go help a child go to school? I hate the waste of those resources when I can no longer give back or live or praise. I know that you're also an advocate for death with dignity. I am. Does that translate over to a disease like Alzheimer's? I think it has to. I mean, I think there are ways, and certainly in the Netherlands, uh, I guess in Switzerland and in Germany, there are uh, companies and organizations that can help you with that. You know, we have death with dignity in Colorado as long as you don't have any neurological condition. <laughs> and, you know, you have to have doctors agree and all. But I think there are ways to establish, to set it up. Why couldn't, from the day I decided I believed in death with dignity, which was actually probably 20 years ago, but now let's just say with my Alzheimer's, why couldn't I document and document and document and document and have my family document, have doctors document? And then at a well-meaning point, maybe even when I'm still conscious enough to say, like Amy Bloom's wonderful memoir where she talks about her husband, maybe it's that early. Because the, the tragic ending, just in my realistic mind, and the cost of the tragic ending is, is not good. I think there are ways to set it up. I think we can be more sophisticated than saying any neurological disorder. I mean, I don't think that young teenagers ought to have the right to take their life, right? And maybe 40 or 50 year olds, although you never know, maybe they're just, you, know, you, you never know anyone's stories. But I certainly believe in the disease of Alzheimer's. One should be able to, not that one should have to, I would never encourage it, but one should have the right. To me, it is a moral issue about financial resources, I would rather leave them for people who need them. Just one final question. As you confront the disease, what are your biggest concerns about your future? Well, you know, I have, you, you said biggest, but you know, I hate the thought of not driving. My son now drives me anywhere beyond about five miles around here. I don't trust my spatial management. Downtown Denver's a mess. You know, it's city traffic, right? I mean, you know, city traffic. But I can see my way around that. I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's getting in those stages that are more like my grandmother's Alzheimer's. Leaving the gas on the stove. Um, forgetting to eat or to... You know, one of the reasons I got a dog or my husband was convinced to get a dog is the dog already knows to lead me home nearby. We'll eventually put a GBS on him, the wandering. And then the dependency. Oh, I hate to think of that. I mean, who wants to think of somebody changing their diaper or giving them a bath? Ugh. I, again, death itself doesn't scare me. It's those stages right before death. You give me the chills, quite frankly, because my greatest fear, having been a caregiver for so many years, 
is I don't want to burden my children with what it took for me to care for my husband and my mother. It's unacceptable to the way I see my life or who I want to be remembered as. Yeah. And that to me is the most painful, yeah, but drives me like you, right, to be the advocate, unrelenting. People said, why didn't you run away from the disease? Yeah. And I can't, because once you've seen it, I think you're changed forever. Yeah. I think so, too. And, and, and that, those words are beautiful and straight. I mean, straight on. I want to also underscore who wants their children to remember them like that. I don't have grandchildren yet. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. And what parent wants that? I don't want my husband. You do. You remember. You always are going to remember what it was like. I will always remember my mother and grandmothers. You always remember your husband, too. So much better not to. Rebecca, I would love to continue to visit with you from time to time. I think this conversation is so important to share. And you're on the front lines, and there's a great deal of bravery stepping out in this environment. So I'd love to invite you back. Good. And we'll just check in from time to time and talk about things that people may not ask you. <laughs> I'd be delighted to. You, you, you ask good, good questions. I like to think. It's good for my brain. Or commiserate together. Yes, that too. It has been such an honor to take this time with you. Rebecca, you really have just been so, so compelling. Thank you. Our guest today has been Rebecca Chop, former university chancellor, Yale theologian, and advocate for Voices of Alzheimer's. Her book, Still a Work in Progress, is It's Not My Grandmother's Alzheimer's. One final note, our conversation is a reminder that we need to continue to empower them to assure that people with early-stage Alzheimer's can maintain their dignity after diagnosis while fighting for workplace accommodations, more equal access and coverage for better diagnostics, treatment, and care. They are the voices of Alzheimer's, and each of us is a stakeholder because we're all at risk. That's it for this edition. I'm Errol Coomer. Thank you for brainstorming with us. Our team is on a mission to help you stay up with the latest scientific breakthroughs, from new therapies to technologies on early diagnosis and personal brain health advice from well-known experts using an equity lens that promotes brain health for all. Now, we'd like to hear what's on your mind. What are the topics and guests you'd like to hear featured on Brainstorm? Send your comments to brainstorm at usagainstalzheimers.org. Subscribe to Brainstorm on your favorite podcast platform and join us on the first and third Tuesday of every month.